version of this talk that I gave a while ago. The title was The Greatest Disappointment Leading to Peace. But tonight's title is Protection for the Heart, Mindfulness of Emotions. We have this human predicament. We live in this world of change and unpredictability. So we feel vulnerable. Are you tired of hearing about this yet? (laughs) It's really, it's the deepest human conundrum. How do we be at peace in such a world, in this world of change, unpredictability, and uncontrollability? This human realm is not such an easy one. I don't think there's any of you who would disagree with me about that. And the biggest problem is that life is always changing. We can't peg it down, make it like we always want it to be. And of course we have some some influence. I'm not talking about complete passivity or that we're completely powerless. But yes, we've taken birth in this universe of change. And it's a fairly wild, wild ride. And the unpredictability and the uncontrollability touches our hearts. And there can be this sense of vulnerability. So in the face of this vulnerability, the heart needs some protection. And I sometimes say that practice is a slow transition in what protects the heart and the mind. So the heart-mind develops strategies to deal with this predicament of living in a world of change. And we have three deeply conditioned strategies that we tend to use to manage this world. They're the strategies of grasping or holding on, aversion or pushing away, and delusion And these three are really all about control. There are attempts to make life manageable, to control it. So grasping controls by trying to hold on to what's pleasant. So perhaps at lunch today, we had three cheese baked ziti, right? And you're going along, you're eating lunch, it's pleasant, you're enjoying it. And then at some point, it occurs to you, It's going to end. (laughs) So what happens? What happens? This sense of tension enters the heart-mind, right? Or or a sense of contraction. Maybe I can go back for seconds. What if it's all gone? This sense of loss, right? there's, There's the grasping. And there's some hidden belief in that grasping that we can make the experience stay through that contraction. Now, obviously, if I said to you, can you make the lunch last forever by wanting it to? Of course you're going to say, no, we're not that delusional. But there's, <laughs> but there's this, it's really interesting to observe this kind of hidden belief that grasping is going to work. And then aversion. Aversion is... Um, in the face of unpleasantness, the, the pushing it away, the uh, trying to avoid unpleasantness. Can I live without 
having to experience any unpleasantness. And again, there's that kind of hidden belief that the pushing away will make it go away. The third strategy is uh, called ignorance or delusion in Buddhism or denial. And with this control strategy, we live at a slight remove from life. You could say that we, we disconnect, that we try not to see the truth, not to see this life of change and unpredictability. So this afternoon I was working on the talk, and my favorite way to do, work on a talk is I'll work for a while, and then I like to go for some exercise, a bike ride or a walk, and it, it kind of moves everything, and, and then I come back and finish the talk. So I worked for a while, and then I went to the door, and it was raining, and um, it was for a split second, there was this thought, it's not raining. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's really, it's really quick, but it was like, that was, that was denial or delusion. And there was, you know, that, just that moment where, like, there was this hope that, that it was really true that it wasn't raining, even though it was very obviously raining. And then after that, there was this um, wish for it to stop. And again, there was that, like, subtle I call it, it's like magical thinking that that wish for the rain to go away would make it go away. And then it was fine. I dealt with it. I had a nice walk. Um, But it's, it's fascinating to watch the mind do this. To, to try to manage this world so that it, uh, so that we don't feel vulnerable basically. so that we can control it. So there are kinds of protections for the heart, grasping, aversion, delusion. So, so there's a way that, that, that you could say we like these, these strategies. They give us some illusion of control. I was teaching in Ohio a couple months ago, and um, a younger woman was assisting me some with uh, sittings and uh, some movement. We were talking at dinner. I was giving some talks similar to this, probably, and it's like the only thing I like to talk about. So um, I was talking about it, and she said, I like clinging. (laughs) It makes me feel better, kind (laughs) of. I like clinging. It makes me feel better, kind of. So it's the kind of that is the problem, right? It makes me feel better because it gives us the illusion of control and that we can really manage life the way we want it to be. The kind of, the kind of is the problem. So with these control strategies, there's a price. That's the kind of part. The price for, for a grasping and attachment and aversion and delusion, the price is restlessness and manipulation of the truth, stress. It's stressful. So in some ways we might feel a little bit stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, to open to life as it is, we, we may feel very vulnerable. And yet to control, to try to control life through grasping, aversion, delusion, 
feels stressful, it feels alienating. We see that, that grasping, aversion, and delusion, um, they get in the way of our ability to touch life directly. So we do have a predicament, don't we? <laughs> you could say that we wish for the truth and then we don't wish for the truth at the same time. We have this strong, you know, along with this strong yearning for truth, we have this desire also not to know. It's like side by side with our wish for truth. It's the ambivalence that we can feel in practice sometimes. There's a great quote by Jane Wagner. I think she's Lily Tomlin's uh, speechwriter and partner. She says, Reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. (laughs) What I like about that is it really points to this ambivalence, right? About being in touch with the truth. So what are we to do with our human hearts, our human life? It's a poignant question. So there's some sense of security with grasping, with aversion, with delusion, and yet there's not the peace that we're looking for. So then we think maybe we'll come to a practice and we'll somehow transcend this human realm. We hope that if we can practice, perhaps we can escape this vulnerable human life. I was reading a story, a book about happiness a few years ago, and there was a tradition among the 5th century hermits that they would um, build these pillars, the desert fathers, they lived in the desert somewhere around Egypt or so, and they would build these uh, pillars and they would live on top of them so that they would be closer to God. And there was one named St. Simon Stylites who lived on top of this 60-foot pillar for 36 years. It's like that, it's that hope for transcendence, right, that we can um, rise above this human realm and touch God or reality or enlightenment that way. Maybe we should try it here. <laughs> But when Mara, as Jesse was talking last night, when Mara asked the Buddha what right he had to be fully enlightened, he touched the earth. He touched the earth. He didn't point towards the sky and say, yippee, I'm out of here. (laughs) He touched the earth. And so to me that symbolizes this embracing this fully embracing his humanity. So transcendence perhaps is not the answer to this dilemma of our vulnerable human lives. So the greatest disappointment leading to peace is that we can't control this world and this life. That control isn't going to do it for us. Sometimes this really bums me out. 
It was the way I was planning on solving the human dilemma. I love John Cage concerts. John Cage, the avant-garde um, American composer. And here's a story of a concert that he gave in Naropa in 1974. I think it was two and a half hours long, I read somewhere. I gave a performance of my piece, this is John Cage speaking, I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students of Choigren Trumpa at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four or five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet following a score which was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me, but they are very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience. <laughs> but they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. I heard somewhere there was a near riot. Um, the next morning, I had a meeting with Choigren Trumpa, and he asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. <laughs> so I, I, when I read that, I was like, well, why did they get so upset? And I think in some ways it was the unpredictability. It was... Um, it wasn't what they had expected or wanted. And I think that's also why Trung Parimpache gave him a job, was because he, he, he was good at um, bringing forth that truth of uncertainty and unpredictability. We just want the predictability. They just wanted the predictability. But things are as they are. This is the universe that we got, this one of constant change. And so we really don't have any choice but to make peace with this world. And fortunately, meditation practice offers us some sane and peaceful ways to protect the heart and the mind. You can think of meditation sometimes as one of those epic journeys you read about in mythical stories. So the hero or the heroine has uh, many trials and tribulations, a journey to make. And they're almost always sent in with some protective talisman or some protective phrase or somebody they can call. There's, there's almost always some protection that's offered. And we can think of practice as a slow transition from these, from relying on these um, contracted forms of protection to developing saner ones that lead to peace. And the two of them that I'll mention tonight are the protections of mindfulness and the protections of metta, or loving kindness, or unconditional love. So why is mindfulness a protection for the heart? Mindfulness teaches us how to connect with things as they are, and it strengthens the ability of the heart-mind to 
to flow with change, to be with things as they are. With mindfulness, we, we point directly to experience in the moment. This is the way things are right now. And we can increase our capacity to meet whatever is happening. So part of the beauty of mindfulness is this aspect of acceptance. Remember the RAIN, R-A-I-N, A for acceptance. That's, that's pointing to the fact that no experience is unworthy of mindfulness. Any experience, any experience we have is worthy of mindfulness. Whether it's pain, anger, rage, joy, bliss, sorrow, all are included. So with mindfulness, we learn to deeply trust and relax into our capacity to be with life through all of its changes, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, And mindfulness makes it possible for us to learn, to develop understanding, to develop equanimity, to learn for ourselves in our own experience what leads to suffering and what leads to peace. It's mindfulness, that capacity to be with our experience moment by moment. That's where we learn from seeing for ourselves or experiencing for ourselves the truth. So mindfulness connects us to the truth of things. And the truth is always a protection because there's rest there. There's rest with the truth. So we could say that meditation is practice in dealing with reality. So we see where's our edge. We explore where's our edge with uh, what parts of reality we're not so sure that we can meet. What do we reject or what do we deny? What can we connect with? What stretches our heart, our mind, our capacity? Ajahn Chah describes meditation. He says, put a chair in the middle of a room, sit in the chair, see who comes to visit. So who came in the last sitting? That's Vipassana, see who comes to visit. And through this process, we really develop trust in our capacity to be with life. And that trust is a kind of protection. Metta as a protection of the heart. Metta is the softness that melts the edges of control. And its protection also is in its inclusivity, how large our hearts can get. Again, metta includes everything. So we turn towards, so we practice turning towards every experience with kindness. Again, whether it's anger, joy, pain, pleasure, closed heart, open heart, with softness. In Burma, it's known as a guardian meditation, so it's known as a protection meditation. 
it really makes the heart both strong and gentle, which is an excellent combination. In my early practice, I felt that it all had to be done with a sense of will. I think Jesse also talked about this last night, right? So I felt like I, I, I could, really I was trying to control practice and trying to make things happen and felt that that should be how it happened. And finally that didn't work. <laughs> and I, I tried, I learned some metta meditation. And what I learned with metta meditation is how the heart can be strong and soft at the same time. And that it's that softness that actually transforms the heart and the mind. So what a surprise to learn that, that we do it through love. That transformation happens through love. So I'd like to shift a little bit here and talk about this quality of mindfulness and metta too, and how we can meet the experience of emotions, especially afflictive ones, those seem to be the more challenging ones, uh, the, the protective ones related to grasping, attachment, aversion, how we can meet them with uh, balance and understanding. As we've mentioned before, with meditation we turn towards these afflictive emotions to connect with them, to know them, to understand their nature. And in that way, their uh, power over us lessens and the need for their protection lessens. But it's not about getting rid of them, it's about turning towards them with mindfulness and metta. So first we need to get over the idea that something is wrong if we um, experience emotions or afflictive emotions on any time. But on retreat, we sometimes have this idea that if we're feeling anger, for example, something's wrong. My first long retreat here, it was around, I think it was around day 10, which was about the day for those of you who've been here a few weeks, or a few weeks, (laughs) those of you who've been here for 10 days. I tended to be, uh, before I started practice, I was wrapped pretty tight, let's just put it that way. I kept things pretty under control. And uh, so about day 10, I just got slammed with all these emotions and uh, I I was really overwhelmed. So I went in to have an interview with uh, my teacher, Joseph, at the time. And uh, so I I was crying, I was really upset. And I'm like, and I feel angry and lonely and afraid and irritated and and really there were about 10 I can't remember what what it is now but I went through this long list so he just listened and then he said what's the problem (laughs) (laughs) and it was such a great teaching for me you know I had thought that there really was a problem you know, I, I guess I thought there was a problem with feeling something. He was like, just go take a walk, you'll be fine. And um, I was, you know, I went and took a walk and, and I was fine. Um, I had never considered that it might not be a problem to feel deeply. So we all have our favorite afflictive emotions. You probably know yours. Fear has been mine, fear has been 
probably my greatest teacher in practice. And we do usually start by assuming that we need to get rid of, to get rid of uh, our favorite afflictive emotion. It's a little hard sometimes to see them as our best teacher, but they really are. They soften the heart when we really learn how to meet them. Rumi said, everyone chooses a suffering that, changes, that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. It's that softening quality that happens. And often what challenges us the most is our door to freedom because we're very motivated to look deeply. I was really motivated to understand fear. So it taught me so much. So how can we work with afflictive emotions skillfully? Let's just take a moment to review what we usually do when we don't have the tools of mindfulness and metta. So usually what we'll do when emotions arise is we'll either drown or we'll avoid. So drowning in emotions is we get lost in the story and we identify with the thoughts, meaning that we believe them. We lose perspective. And, and we tend to suffer. So we create these whole worlds and these universes, and we do it so effectively that we actually think that they're real. It's kind of wild, isn't it? It's really one of the wonders of the world, how we can believe the stories that our minds fabricate when they're enmeshed in an emotion. It's like we make them all up, and then we, we really think they're true. A few years ago, I was on retreat, and I was meditating in the Northwest. I was up in a little cottage on the hill, and uh, I'm sitting there meditating. I hear this sound. So I have this thought. Oh, it's a cow mooing. Well, I like cows. That's great. A little later. And I thought. It's not a cow. It's a chainsaw. I don't like chainsaws. That's bad. <laughs> and so, I, so this went on for a while, and I watched my mind. It was like it really wanted to know which version of reality to create. <laughs> you know, it was just hearing. It was just vibration at the ear door. It really didn't matter. But it was like, is it a cow? In which case, I like it. I'm happy about this. This is a universe, you know, I create. Or is it a chainsaw? Oh, I don't like that. They're cutting down all the forest. Aversion. It's really, again, the mind trying to find a way to control, to know what kind of reality creates so I could know what to do about it. I never did find out, though. I suspect it was chainsaws. So this is a drowning. We make up these stories. An emotion happens, we make up these stories, and then we believe them. And lots of things can come out of that. Then the second way that we can tend to work with emotions is we avoid them. So we do anything not to feel a certain emotion. So we distract ourselves, or there's restlessness, or we never stop and face ourselves. And it works somewhat temporarily. 
but we know it isn't peace because of that restlessness, that feeling of edginess, of, of being afraid of ourselves or on the run. Now, obviously, it can be helpful to repress emotions in certain uh, situations. It can be a short-term good plan. But in the long term, it doesn't uh, solve this human predicament. Another way us spiritual folks might do this is by editing out, editing, trying to edit out uh, emotions that we find disagreeable or unspiritual, which I think is actually a form of spiritual terrorism. Uh, my last retreat, a yogi came in and she said, she said, I felt hatred. I know I'm not supposed to feel that, but I did. And uh, I said to her, I feel hatred sometimes too. And she's like, you do? And I said, yeah. You know, when I notice it, I don't feed it. And I would say I much less believe it than I used to. But of course it arises. It's a human experience. She was so relieved. So we don't have to pretend that we don't feel certain things. This really shuts down the heart. So an emotionless state is also not the answer. Drowning in emotions isn't so helpful, and an emotionless state isn't the answer either. So mindful awareness is a third option. And with this option, we turn towards emotions with mindfulness and with metta. We move towards emotions and we get intimate, you could say, with them. We get to know them very well. So here are some specific ways or tips on how to be with emotions with mindfulness. And this can be for both afflictive emotions, the ones that... um, bring turbulence to the heart and mind, and also what we call wholesome emotions or uh, emotions like happiness, peace, uh, metta, compassion, equanimity, calm, all the um, more pleasant emotions. We, we, we work with them actually the same way. So first of all, if an emotion arises, see if we can name it. It can be helpful. Oh, anger. Oh, fear. Joy. And then we notice how we feel it in the body. That's a great way to be with emotions. Are there corresponding physical sensations? So we can be curious. Perhaps if there's anger, there's tightness in the chest or a sense of heat. Perhaps if there's joy, there's a sense of of, um, bubbliness or um, rising feeling in the body, uplifting feeling in the body. Anger feels like this. Joy feels like this. Then we can notice what is our experience of this emotion in the mind. So there's the body and the mind. So is the mind, what's the texture of the mind? Is it dull or clear? Expansive, contracted, flexible, tight? What kinds of thoughts arise? Some people experience emotions primarily as thoughts. So if there's anger, there might be thoughts of self-righteousness or revenge. And we're not 
we're not so interested in the, in the particular story, but it can be helpful to understand the kinds of thoughts that arise with certain emotions to really help us be mindful of them and not getting lost in them and, and, and to see them for what they are, a created fabrication in the mind. So we might notice the charge that the thoughts have. Thoughts tend to have charge when there's an emotion. We might notice that we believe them or how much we believe them or the urge to believe them or how alluring and vivid they are. We start to see that when an emotion is present that it, that it uh, creates a certain... Um, filter in the mind so that we see things only a certain way. So when we're angry, when you think of somebody that you love and you're angry at them, there's there's this picture that's painted. They're such a jerk. They're insensitive, whatever. And when we're in the grips of anger, we believe that. And then when we're not angry, we look at them and they look totally different, right? So so we start to see this happen for ourselves to help us remember that. Because when you're in the grips of anger, you forget, right? You really believe they're an insensitive jerk. But when we are mindful of anger over and over again, we can be angry and suddenly it can occur to us, oh, that's, that's just what I'm perceiving in this moment. It's, it's the story of anger. So it's like we dehypnotize ourselves. When, when emotions are present and we're lost in them, we're hypnotized. And we learn to dehypnotize ourselves. Another one of the awesome wonders of this world is how we believe our thoughts. I mean, think of your last sitting, the things you believed during that sitting. With mindfulness, we learn, Michelle was talking about it the first night, non-identification. Non-identification is learning not to believe, with emotions, is learning not to believe the stories in our mind. So identification is, I call it the stickiness factor. When an emotion comes up and it's really sticky, it's like gooey, you get stuck in it, and then you believe the stories, right? Then we're identifying with the emotion. So we examine that stickiness, and we, we, learn, to, um, we learn to see how we believe and how we get lost in the emotions. And then with time, the, they, they start to become less sticky. So the emotion's still present, and we can feel it, but there's... There's more space, you could say, around it. So we have to not be afraid to get in there and to uh, experience for ourselves what I'm talking about. So sometimes we really identify with an emotion. We get totally uh, hooked by it. That's not bad. It's part of the process, actually, is watching that happen, seeing that happen, seeing how we come out of it. So then, so, so what's the emotion? How do we experience it in the body? How do we experience it in the mind? Um, then how does it change? So we're, 
perhaps we're with anger, and as we're with it, um, it changes into hurt or to fear. Maybe it gets stronger. Maybe it goes away. So we're with that process. Do we see? Sometimes it ends. Do we see it end? Then what's our relationship with this emotion? So is there acceptance? Or if it's pleasant, is there grasping? Do we try to hang on? If it's unpleasant, do we try to get rid of it? What happens when we notice that? So we get curious about the relationship. That's actually the real hook, is the relationship to the emotion. Is it possible to incline the mind towards metta and compassion? I mentioned the other day that there's a teacher in Thailand who talked about the 20 kinds of fear, I mean, 20 kinds of uh, silence. And uh, I also know a teacher who talked about the 10 kinds of equanimity. And I was so intrigued by the, the capacity to do that at one point a number of years ago. I thought, well, what can I write about? And I thought, I know a lot about fear. So I sat down and made a list of all the different kinds of fear that I'd experienced in meditation practice. And I started out with 13 kinds, and um, it's probably up to about 19 or 20 now, I think, the list. And um, it was really helpful because it really increased the the curiosity uh, and the willingness to meet that experience. It was fun to make the list. Then later I made a list of all the different kinds of happiness that I've experienced in meditation. And that was pretty, that was like 15 or 16. So that balances it out. So as we're being with emotions, if they're very sticky or overwhelming, it's really useful to learn how to touch them and then how to move out. So sometimes we have this ideal that if an emotion arises in meditation, we should uh, uh, um, go in there and stay in there, right, and stay with it for at least an hour. Um, That's not always helpful, especially with really strong emotions. So it really can be helpful to touch and then to know how to to move away, so to come back to the anchor or um, if you need to open your eyes, go, to come out as far as you can to um, find balance again. And the strength comes from that ability to touch and from that ability to, to move away. We, we begin to trust ourselves when we know that we can um, exit if needed. Many years ago, I worked with a lot with a kind of fear that I called the black hole for years in my early practice. And so the black hole was this fear that I would fall into that was, it was kind of like spinning in outer space and nobody would save me kind of fear. And uh, I would get in, I would fall into it and I would really believe uh, the stories, and there was lots of terror. It was a really difficult place. So the first thing I learned with mindfulness was to recognize 
that that's where I was at and to know how to get out of it. So whatever I had to do, and this was not just on the meditation cushion, it was in my daily life too. Once I knew that I could get out, then I actually became interested in the experience. So I would be in the experience of the black hole and uh, I would be like, what is this territory? What does it feel like in the body? What are the thoughts? It was kind of this vast, uh, scary place. And um, over time I got so that I wasn't afraid of it. At first I had been quite afraid of this place, but then I got so that I could be in it and I wasn't afraid of it. And then I remember one day I was sitting and I don't think I was sitting in meditation, but I was just doing something. And it was like I could see the black hole coming. It was almost like this monster coming. <laughs> I could see it coming and I said, oh, hello, I know you. And it was like, I know this is all metaphor, but it was like the black hole was like, what? It was like, this wasn't business as usual. And it was almost like it didn't have a place to land. And uh, it was like, oh, okay then, (laughs) bye. (laughs) And um, it was through that process first of knowing how to protect myself from it and getting out of it, and then knowing how to experience it and be with it that it lost uh, its power. So you can see it wasn't by trying to get rid of it. It was by becoming quite intimate with it. Another thing that... uh, Another place that we can work with with afflictive emotions is understanding the chain of conditioning that leads to afflictive emotions. So understanding, for example, the relationship between something happens, there's sense contact in Buddhist understanding, something happens, it may be unpleasant, and out of that unpleasantness, aversion happens. So Before we practice, it seems like aversion and unpleasantness and aversion are married, that there's like no difference between them. So sound, unpleasant sound, aversion, unpleasant aversion. They're just together. And we can start to understand that actually they don't have to be together. One time I was sitting in this hall, I was sitting back in that corner there, and I was having a very nice meditation period, you know, pretty concentrated, things were going really well. And then they started mowing the lawn out front. And uh, I experienced it as quite unpleasant. I was like, oh, my practice was going so good and now it's ruined. And why, how are they so insensitive? Why would they want to mow during the, the sitting period? Why can't they mow during the walking period? And now my meditation is ruined, you know, aversion, 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 right? So I got interested. It was like, oh, there was the sound at the ear door, vibration, right? There was unpleasant. And I noticed that out of that unpleasantness, that whole hoopla came out of that unpleasantness. It was just unpleasant. And I saw it. I didn't have to follow with aversion. I could just be with unpleasant. It was 
a very liberating moment. And it came from working with an unpleasant experience. In this case, it was a sound. So we can investigate for ourselves this chain and how it happens, going between the bare sense experience, the unpleasantness, the aversion if it's present. Maybe sometimes it just stops. Unpleasant. That's okay. Same with pleasant. So we're sitting here and we're having a pleasant sitting. And then there's this um, sense of wanting to hold on to it, right? So we can just notice, oh, pleasant. It's pleasant. Perhaps pleasant and grasping don't have to be married. We can check it out for ourselves. The Buddha taught that this point is really important for understanding for our freedom. That link, the link between what's called the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the reactivity when we're not mindful. And when we are mindful, the chance that uh, we can just let it settle right with the experience as it is. The other thing we, with emotions, so often we'll find that we're with an emotion because we want it to go away, right? The idea is, uh, uh, I'll be with you if you go away. And uh, when we notice that this is happening, it can be useful to, uh, I call it the 70% rule. I got it from my Qigong practice. In Qigong, we are always told to only stretch 70% as far as we could go. And I'm not a 70% kind of gal. I'm um, a 95% kind of gal. So I, I thought, well, that's probably for other people. It's not for me. <laughs> and um, so, so I would find myself sometimes in Qigong, you know, kind of up near 100%. And it took me a while to realize that when I was up near 100%, I was trying to bypass my experience. But, uh, usually some emotion that was coming up from the from the Qigong exercises, and that when I backed off to 70%, then I actually felt what was happening. So watch in our own practice when emotions arise, if we're going at it you know, full steam, is there, is there this sense that we're, actually, we're trying to get rid of it? And what's it like to just back off a little bit and to actually feel it? Sometimes it's like, So an emotion comes up, and it's like we're sitting outside a foxhole with a baseball bat, and we're saying, little foxy, come out. You know? (laughs) I won't hurt you. (laughs) You know, we want to coax these these, uh, um, hurt places or these uh, difficult emotions. We want to coax them out so that we can then bash them with a a baseball bat, right? And the fox is no dummy. He's not going to come out. So put the bat down. Back off a little ways and see what happens. A really great practice with emotions is to realize that they're not permanent. Pleasant and unpleasant. So another one of the wonders of the world is that when we're... Uh, in, in, Lost in emotion, we believe it's going to last forever. It's like, think of the last time you were afraid. It's wild, but we really think we're going to be afraid the rest of our lives. 
or the last time you were happy. We think we're going to be happy the rest of our lives. And so even if we're in the middle of an emotional, uh, an emotion, an emotion, we can just say, this too will pass. That's very powerful. Unpleasant emotion, this too will pass. Advanced practice, for those of you who want the advanced practice, pleasant emotion, this too will pass. It's great to do it with pleasant emotions too because the more that we can unhook from the believing that pleasant emotions are eternal and everlasting, the more we'll be able to do it with unpleasant emotions or difficult ones. Another point working with emotions is to realize that uh, they're not me and they're not mine. That in some sense... Uh, they're impersonal. And it's, it's a kind of a juxtaposition because on one level, on the relative level, yes, this is my emotion. It's happening to me and I need to take responsibility for it. That's true. On another level, on, um, it's an experience that is arising and passing away because of conditions. And they're both true. I'm guessing that nobody here has had an emotion that nobody else has ever had. So we can realize that. It's helpful to realize that. One time, I remember again, I was sitting in this hall over that side, and I was feeling really lonely. So I'm being with loneliness. And then I had this realization that at that moment, there were many people in the world who were feeling lonely. It lightened it. It wasn't so personal. It was actually quite beautiful. Compassion arose. Didn't have to go away. So this understanding transforms emotions from something hardened in me to some universal human experience that happens to be happening in this mind, body, heart at this moment. And as I said, on the relative level, it is our emotion and we have to take care of it. This is from Karen Mason Miller. It's about uh, some teachings she got from Thich Nhat Hanh. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches when he suggests that we view our anger as a howling baby. No one wants to be around it, but it cannot be ignored. Someone needs to do something about that baby. The baby is yours, and you are the only one who can do anything about it. However disagreeable the infant is, you pick the baby up and place it in your lap. Then you rock and comfort her and wait. You attend to yourself without judgment or blame. In this way, anger wears itself out. The baby goes to sleep. Someone needs to do something about that baby. The baby is yours, and the only one who can do anything is you. (laughs) That's the relative level. And the absolute level is, it's not personal.
there's also a way as we become more and more comfortable with emotions that there's a sense of lightness that begins to arise and it comes out of this not taking it too personally. Uh, There's a sense of uh, spaciousness and lightness when uh, emotions arise. Here's a story from Pema Chodron. She's talking about a Tibetan yogi called Geshe Ben. Whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. And when he saw himself getting hooked by attachment, he dressed himself as you fool. Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. Suddenly, realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, Thief! Thief! I've caught a thief! (laughs) When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. Another time the patrons <laughs> another time the patrons invited all the monks for a meal, Geshe Ben was seated last. As the servers were doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic. What if there's none left for me? How can that big monk take such a huge helping? As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he could move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got to him, he put his hand over the bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. (laughs) We can learn to have that same kind of attitude towards attachment when it arises within us a lightness, a playfulness. We don't have to take it too seriously. So our suggestion of moving towards afflictive mind states, it may sound like a grim struggle, but if it's done with gentleness and care and metta, this investigation increases the spaciousness of our minds and our hearts, and it increases our access to joy. When we're not afraid of ourselves, you could say that through this process we learn to trust ourselves deeply, not to be afraid of our experience. And when we're not afraid, we don't need to protect ourselves so much. We don't need the protections so much of greed and and anger or aversion. And then we, there's so much more space in the heart for the arising of, of beautiful emotions of metta and compassion, calm, peace, equanimity, all of the paramis that Jesse was talking about later or yesterday. Some people worry sometimes that that meditation might make us flat or unalive, but it actually makes us uh, more of who we are in a very beautiful way, more of the beauty within can shine forth. I think of some of the most uh, awakened folks that I know, and uh, their purity of heart is what you notice. And their personality is still the same. It doesn't have to be flattened out. We don't have to make ourselves fit in some kind of spiritual ideal. 
the happy monk that we've mentioned, he, he's, he's, he's bubbly and, and vivacious. And, um, and then there's another monk we visit who's quiet, and he's like an ocean. Both beautiful in their own way. When the heart isn't so protected with aversion and attachment, then this shines forth. So we develop faith in ourselves and trust in ourselves through the practices of mindfulness and metta. We increase our capacity to be with all that arises in this human experience, including the full range of emotional experiences. And then when we learn how to hold emotions and how to hold suffering with care and lightness. We're freer to be here for others and to be of service on this planet. Another great gift. I'd like to end with a little story from Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, Then the Laundry. And it's a, um, it's a story of, of one Buddhist teacher unidentified how uh, this transformation of practice had manifested in his life. He says, In many ways the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person I'd first hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. Let's sit for a minute or two. We'll sit until my leg wakes up.